Day three, reclaim. The next fight is going to be about water. You know, water is, is, is now a, a, like a commodity. Welcome back to day three, climate on tap, rituals of remembrance and restoration. Today's episode features the esteemed former principal chief, Thomas Dardar, and Betty Billiot of the United Homa Nation, the largest tribe in Louisiana that has survived the impacts of colonization and countless climate disasters, always having to recover without the benefit of federal recognition by the United States government. The Homa Nation is composed of very proud and independent people who have close ties to the water and the land of their ancestors. As an inaugural board member and a former staff member, Chief Thomas and Betty's unique experiences in Louisiana offer a blueprint of what reclaiming histories, connection, and leadership looks like in action. Reclaim. We reclaim our connection to each other and the planet through our relationships. Passing the mic to former Principal Chief Thomas and Betty. It really started, you know, because we identify to the land and the land identifies who we are and where we live and what we do and, and what our ancestors have gone through to really uh, preserve and, you know, cultivate us into the knowledge of this land and, you know, the respect for it. Uh, I've been to a few group sessions and meetings with other people and uh, they, they look at us and they say, oh, look, why don't you just move uh, and leave that area? You know, because you're always getting different uh, disasters that come through, all spills, hurricane, natural disasters and everything else. But again, if you look, you know, uh, our ancestors now are buried here. My mother and father are buried here now. So the land takes on a whole different meaning for me now. Before it was, you know, preserving for our grandchildren and our children because the land is we don't own it. We just born it from the next generation. And if we leave it in a worse shape than what we received it and what are we saying about our ancestors and telling our grandchildren when we are not really respecting the land and taking care of it the way that they did. They formed it. We, We ate a lot of things and they harvest from the sea. Teaching that value, getting back to respecting Mother Earth, is going to take some doing because we went, I don't want to say messed up, but we didn't, when we were coming up, people didn't tell us, you know, what we were doing was harming the land. Uh, We just saw a way of living. And unfortunately, that way of living has really, you know, had a detrimental effect on our culture and on our uh, environment and our land. And, I, and I've been teaching my grandchildren a lot about the environment and how to, you know, what to do to try to help protect it. But as, as time goes on, then we realize that uh, the generation that's coming up now, we need to get them more involved and get them more activated uh, and realizing that if they don't take care of what we have, we're going to lose it quick, fast and in a hurry. As we realize now uh, from the tidal rise, uh, and land loss and everything else that's happened at a, a enormous speed where, you know, our ancestor and our elders didn't realize that we were losing that much land. And, and, you know, they told us about taking care of it and they told, and they showed us how to do it, but we just kind of veered away from all of that. I agree with all of that. And I just want to add that traditionally our, our people have always 
in, in that saying, you know, you take care of the land, the land will take care of you. And traditionally, we, the water, the land, where we are, you know, um, it provided everything. It provided everything that we ever needed. And, and families took care of families with what was given to us and what was cultivated from our surroundings, with gardening, with gardening, with hunting, with trapping, with tripping, with everything that we were doing traditionally. We moved away from that as, as time went on. But there's a strong urge and there's a strong push to get back to those traditional ways and move back and, and, and go back to, you know, how things once were a lot of our land that we once had. Uh, that our people had traditionally in these Bayou areas have, have lost to the water uh, due to these storms and the increase in storms into these um, the marshlands and the sinking and the subsidence and the rising of the waters and everything and all the other factors that play into that. But, uh, you know, what we have left is, is, you know, precious and it's a race against time, you know, to save what we have left to be able to try to continue you know, are some of our traditional ways. And as it was, a lot of the reason why the culture is so important, because I can remember coming up, you know, we learn our culture from different tribes because our, our, my grandmother, my father, and if it wouldn't have been for my mother, we'd have lost a lot of it, but she was very instrumental in making sure that we we knew who we were. When we went to school, we had no problem in knowing who we were once they started integrating. Because when we first started, we went to all Indian school, and it was all our cousins, cousins, relatives, and from first grade all the way to twelfth grade, I can remember this. And then when we went to other school, you know, when they started integrating the schools, I can remember like it was sixty-eight, sixty-nine. And talking about school, that's a whole different subject you can get into. That people fought for us to be able to go to school because I can remember my daddy never went to school. My mama went only up to third grade. And some of the schools, in fact, the uh, tribe just got their school settlement in Golden Meadow. Chief Lorian was able to sign documents on that. So these these uh, significant areas, you know, we're trying to preserve and trying to maintain, and the tribe is moving forward to do all this. But as I was saying, they were proud people. And I, and I, and I say this, and I got corrected a few times, and they told me, you know, it's not the culture that they were ashamed of. It's just that when we went to places— they were trying to fit in. They thought by not telling us who we were uh, that that would help us to fit in better in these places as we were growing up. And as we found out, it really didn't, you know, it really didn't matter because people, when, as soon as you walked in, oh, you, they knew who we were before we even knew who they were. Uh, and they told us that. And it's a shame that many years later now, the same people that told us who we were, now they're trying to deny our heritage and our right to be recognized as a nation. Uh, you know, we were Indian enough not to attend the schools and the other things, but we're not Indian enough to be recognized as a, as a nation. Getting back to where the reason is it's so important to educate our young people, to let them understand that this land means more than just a place to put your foot on, to walk on. It's your identity. It's who you are. It defines you. Because when you go places, you know, uh, I was in the fire department and we went to another uh, a drill. And when we were there, the other people that were there from the other agent, you know, other fire departments, when we did what we were doing, when it was all, when it was getting toward the end of the class and we were doing this and they came and they said, 
y'all have to be from by blue. We know who your chief is. And that's what we need to get back to is when we go places. I went to D.C. and uh, Lucretia and her and I went and we were walking, coming out of the Cannon Hall. And somebody said, hey, chief, hey, chief. And uh, as we were walking out, she stopped me and I stopped and it was uh, Senator David Bitter. And you know, I came and he, we were talking and, and I always tell people we may not be fairly recognized, but the feds do know who we are because of what we do and how we do it. Other tribes look at the way that the United Human Nation handles their business, and they think that the way that we're moving and doing things, that we're fairly recognized. And it, and it really shocks them when they find out all we are is a state-recognized tribe. And we've, meet, and we've met with high-powered people throughout the country. In fact, we went to Paris where just a few years ago, you know, that this climate change is when I really – really got involved with it is to realize that the Gulf South is connected to a global South. And these people are in the same situations that we are when they let the industry come in and really destroy. We found out that, you know, they'll come in and, and take what they want and destroy the land. And they don't tell you the harm and the dangers that are associated with it. A lot of these people, they, they realize, oh, this stuff, you know, it comes in and, and we've had discussion with other people. And other tribes, even in the, as uh, close as uh, Alaska, and, and, and they'd say, well, what, uh, what about this? We want to do this. I said, they'll bring in the infrastructure. They'll bring in the temporary jobs. But when they leave, they'll leave destruction in their wake. Uh, so just hold them accountable and, and learn the lessons that we have learned down this way, that if you hold them accountable and make them, you know, they take out, put back. You know, and make sure that they're responsive to the people that live in the communities and, and get their guidance and, and talk to them and letting our young people know that there's other ways to make a living. When we were growing up, this was the industry. This was the mega of everything. Even one of our former chief, too, uh, Kirby Verrett, uh, they used to tell people, oh, man, you could be a welder out there on the line. Kirby said, why can't we be the guy in the office looking over the guys that are welding out there? Why, why we have to be the welders, you know. So it's having that mindset to change uh, the outlook of our tribe and our people and let them know you don't have to be the guy down at the bottom. And I've always told my children, uh, and if you meet one of them today and you ask them what is the one thing I've, I've always told them, I say you don't have to be a follower. You can be the leader. It's better to be the leader because the scenery changes. So you can be that person that makes the change. And having, you know, trying to pass that same idea to our grandchildren is that they have to realize that you're the generation. You're not the next generation. You are the generation now that needs to step up and really start pulling this plow and really moving this uh, mark forward. We kind of slipped on our end by letting it uh, slip by us, but trying now to really double down and, and really take hold and, and show them where their roots are. It's here. You know, it's easy to pick up and go, and uh, but we're here. We've got to protect and fight for what we have left, and the only way to do it is to be voiceful, join organizations that uh, help foster and, you know, that we can lend some ideas to and be that voice for our people. And if we're not, then we're going to go silent, and people are just going to walk right all over us, and we can't 
You can't just stand by and let that continue happening like it's been happening. There was a time where, where people were speaking for us. And when we talk about reclaiming and reclaiming land and reclaiming energy and water, it is also about rec reclaiming identity, you know, because we are a part of the land. The water, we are a water people, you know, energy is all around us. It's everywhere. It's it's industry. It's people. It's everything. And and labor. It's it's about just standing up and, and taking back something so that we can be in control, especially when it comes to the land. People have made decisions about our land for us and for other folks and for uh, for Louisiana almost in general for a really long time. And now we're at this place where we're fighting to restore land, to preserve land, you know, and, and we're fighting to, you know, keep the land alive. When it comes to water, you know, I remember Chief Thomas had, had said this some years ago, um, you know, the next war, uh, the next fight is going to be about water. You know, water is, is now a, a, like a commodity. And, and that's what's happening. You know, there's this huge fight over uh, over water. Who who has the right to water? Who has the right to clean water? You know, who has the right to the right to the, the riverways and the, the estuaries and, and the um, the watersheds and everything? Um, who has a right to protect it? Who has a right to pollute it? So when we're talking about reclaiming, you know, we, we were claiming something that wasn't meant to be owned by one person or, or beings. It, it wasn't something that was meant to be commercialized and, and things. It was something that was meant to give life and to sustain and to, to grow and to feed us and to nurture us. And so I think this, um, this movement that's going on with taking back what is ours, and I think it, it, it kind of bleeds into um, those traditional ways that passing on to the next generation and all is learning to just be one and, and to share and to preserve and to keep this fight. It doesn't have to be a fight all the time. What was given to us by the creator and what was put here to sustain everyone, you know, and now we have to fight to even access what is, you know, naturally here for everyone. I've been learning a lot about reparations and climate reparations and uh i was you know i was asked to be a part of uh, the delegation that went to scotland and spain i think it actually started in, in spain in cop 25 we were talking about climate reparations and trying to really understand it you know because that that was a term that i wasn't used to uh hearing you know and, and it's something that's that's come out for me it might have been something that people have been hearing for a long time in the in the climate activism environmental justice world but it was something that was new to me so i've been learning learning about it and um and trying to understand exactly how that fits into to my work specifically i'm gathering from what my understanding is the main thing material or funding or or financing or, and things like that is acknowledging that there has to be an acknowledgement that there was something done that there was actions done against people of this land, people of the South, of the Gulf South. We're, we're fighting down here and we're trying to preserve, and we're going to use that word a lot, we're trying to preserve what we have. There's not a clear acknowledgement from those that are 
responsible? And then who do you hold responsible for the damage that has been done to our homelands, to our traditional lands? Blame, and it can go many different ways, but who do we hold accountable and who do we go for for these reparations? Those that have given any kind of little bit of acknowledgement, I don't know, how do you hold water to that? You know, how do you hold water to that without there being anything done? What comes to mind is the BP all spill. And anytime I, I, you know, I think about reparations in our, in our situation in Louisiana and our, our lands, you know, it's the, the same folks that are responsible for whether it's the destruction of our marshlands through dredging, whether it's the, the levy systems that were put in by the Army Corps, whether, you know, whether it was the industries or, or this, it's the same folks that are causing the destruction that are giving pennies on the dollars for restoration plans. There's no altering what they did to damage and what they're doing to continue to damage. Now, I'm thinking of the Coastal Master Plan as an example. We're going to say we're sorry with this hand, but we're going to continue to do what we're doing with this hand. You know, so you can acknowledge all you want also, but where, where's the change? Yeah, there's a word that goes with you trying to look at, uh, Betty. I didn't want to interrupt, but to help you out on some of that right there is that uh, it's called cause-benefit ratio. Uh, I know I've been in, in a few meetings where they look at this and some of the all companies have been called to task, but the money didn't or uh, doesn't go to the people that it affect, went to the to the government. They gave it to them and they did what they wanted to do with it. And even some, if you go back even to that, I can remember President Governor of, United, uh, of, of Louisiana way back when, if you can't do this for us, we don't want none of it. And that it started with that kind of mindset way back then that if Washington wasn't going to do this, our governor, Huey Long, said we don't want any of it. And as you fast forward, even to uh, as we went through some of these politicians, you know, the, the uh, all companies came in and sponsored their election and lobbied for them and lobbied and everything else uh, to D.C. Even when we went for federal recognition, these guys, they went up. And I don't know how many lawyers they sent to D.C. They went to all the other tribes and they told them that they get recognized, blah, blah, blah. They're going to take money from y'all. When really they were, were saying all that to protect their assets. Uh, notice how I said assets here. So just remember. And, you know, it really started harming a lot of our areas where we were because, uh, as you see, we know now and going forward, we knew when they dug these location canals, they were supposed to bury them back. They were supposed to close them off. But if you, and I want to take a couple of people up just to let them realize right here out of the home airport, and I'd like to have a camera in the cockpit facing toward the back of the people that are going up in the plane. And as soon as we clear the tree line, look at their faces and realize that when people have a false sense of security because the land is so devastated as soon as we clear that tree line, water is right there. So people, they think that we're put by putting these levees, Morganza to the Gulf levees, they've cut right through our communities, made these ponds all over the place. New Lodge is a fine example. You go to the island, uh, Pornishan, you can find these big holes. In fact, we went down to Ironton and we went down to Lafitte, Venice and all that, and you'll see these big holes that are cut out in the land now is because they took the hard dirt from there to make these uh, levees, 
even with the last storm, the, the, the water came over these levees. How high are you going to make levees? How high are you going to uh, go to protect, uh, try to protect? And it, they're good in a sense because, you know, they do protect from tidal surge up to a certain amount. But when you get a Cat 5, Cat 4, uh, it's just a little water, a little break in before they, they devastate the land. I learned this cat, this that, that phrase, cost-benefit ratio. What we have left, we have to fight to preserve, as you say. But it's the thing that who do you talk to, who's going to back you, and what do you tell them? You know, because if you bring them down here, the best thing I've found is to take them and let them look at uh, some coordinates. In fact, the Corps came down, what, a few years ago, and they brought a study from the 60s. They got in the boat. They said, we need to go find this place. They stopped the boat. And they said, okay, this is it. They looked at the map. They looked where they were. They looked where the land stopped way back there. They say, well, these maps ain't going to do us no good. No, because the people that came do the surveys in the 50s and 60s retired. They did their whole career and retired and did nothing. And now you have a new generation coming in trying to work with outdated maps and outdated resources and realizing that when you want to go look at what was there 60 years ago, and that's in my lifetime, uh, I bring them and I say, we hunt here now. This is what I We don't hunt, we fish. I mean, I hunted there when I was a kid, and now I'm fishing, catching redfish, drum, and specks and all that on the same area that I used to walk. If you go down the island road, my Uncle Joe, he brought, and we go down there a lot. I remember when we were young, we used to have cattle, horses, and a lot of, a lot of land. And we, every time we do, when we go down there, he pointed out to me, he said, from right here all the way around there, this was farmland. They grew potatoes, uh, you know, corn and everything else right there. And now it's all open water, you know. So uh, the thing about it is, I guess, to, to make people understand and hear our plea is tell them, but invite them and show them. Uh, it's hard to make someone that lives in the middle of the United States that how can you be serious about land loss and, and tidal rise when they don't experience that. They don't, you know, they don't, they don't feel that. But when you bring them down here and they actually see that and you get the elders and you get the people to tell them the stories, as you said earlier, our story, and we're telling it, and we're telling it from our lives. Not some fiction, not some book, not some school where they give you and they tell you, this is what we lived and this is our way of living now. We've had to drastically change because a lot of our land uh, is lost and our culture is having to adapt to what is left of our land that we have now. You have to have friends and you have to have relationships that people really can feel and be emotionally connected because I'm passionate about what I do. And I like to be around passionate people that have the same drive and determination and passion that we have. And I'm with the group that we are in now in the group uh, going forward, they share that, that, that compassion. In fact, they not only have the compassion, but the capabilities of getting our voice to be heard where, you know, it's not just a cry in the night. You're not just shooting arrows in the dark and hoping that you hit a target. Uh, we've been able to make very detailed, specific connections 
to a lot of important people that heard us and hear our plight and have come to understand that helping us to help save our community will benefit not only the United Human Nation, but it will benefit the parishes that the United Human Nation reside in. And, and Taproot has been, from the day one that I've, I've met Miss Colette, and I'll, and I'll say, you know, her and I have forged a relationship that is just un, un, undeniably, and I have a great, great deal of respect for the people that are surrounded with this group. These relationships that have been made over the years since uh, I have became a part, they have been very instrumental moving forward. And it also, it also is a huge reminder that we are not alone. You know, we've met so many folks across the Gulf South, across the Global South, who are going through you know, almost identical issues with land loss, with industries, with, you know, with just everything, the economy, everything that has been going on that we have been felt with. And sometimes we don't realize that there are other communities and there's other folks, there's other indigenous folks, there's other folks, there's other communities of colors, just like ours that are going through the same thing, the same fight. And we've been blessed enough to be able to meet all these other communities and leaders throughout and learn from each other and open those communication and keep those relationships going. We have been in touch, you know, with, with folks uh, and maintain those relationships over the years and shared stories with each other and learn from each other. And I believe that, you know, that has helped us because, you know, we are not alone. We are not alone. And we may seem like we forget when we're in our own little bubble here. <laughs> For a long time, but there's a lot of folks out there that are going through the same thing. And it, it's it's a comfort to know that we have brothers and sisters and relatives all over that have our back and, and we have their back and we support each other in these efforts because it, it's, it's not just a one person or one community issue that is going on. We're a family out here trying to just survive and preserve what, you know, what we have, our homes. Thank you, former Principal Chief Thomas and Betty. I'm so moved by all you've offered to our movement. Tap into Reclaim by writing a letter to future generations. What is your wildest dream for the next generation? How will they be more connected and rooted with the earth? Or what would you like the next generation to know about what you and your community did to help reclaim our humanity. What do you want the next generation to hear? Connect with us at Taproot Earth on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook using the hashtag ClimateOnTap. We'd love it if you share Climate on Tap with your people. Send them this episode or invite them to sign up for the series. Mm-hmm.